But God, we acknowledge this morning that Jesus does, in fact, stand at the center of all things. He stands at the center of our lives, and, and as a church, he stands at the center of that as well. But God, we recognize that we often fail to see that you do stand at the center of all things, Lord, and so we confess that this morning. We confess and we turn from the fact that we want to make ourselves the center. The center of our world and the center of the the universe. We feel oftentimes and are told many times that we stand at the center of it. God, but we are here this morning to declare that it is not us, but it is you that stands at the center of all, all things. God, and so as we center our time on your word this morning, Lord, may we openly acknowledge and rejoice over the fact that you have communicated clearly through your word who you are to a people who are totally undeserving. God, may we as your people look at your word, rejoice in response to all that you are for us in Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. You take your Bible with me and turn to John's Gospel, John chapter 2. This morning we're, we're rounding out our time in John 2 this morning. Uh, next week we'll be into, into chapter 3. John chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 23 through 25 this morning. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are a handful in the back. Uh, go ahead and make your way to the back and pick up. Uh, it's really, I want you to see these words in front of you this morning. So if you don't have it in front of you, uh, take a moment, go and pick one up, grab it, uh, bring it down, uh, and sit down uh, and, and, uh, and find, your, uh, find the text here. If you have one of the black hardcover Bibles from the back, you'll see that it is on page 1054. Um, and for everyone else, we're looking at John chapter 2, beginning in verse 23 through 25. I think as I preached this in the first service, I realized just how in-depth this, this text is. Although at first glance, maybe it doesn't seem that way. There is, uh, there is some, or there are some really important uh, concepts that we want to unpack this morning. And so again, I think it would be really beneficial for you to have the words in, in front of you this morning. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. The Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes... Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. There's a word here that I want to key on that doesn't actually appear necessarily in the text, at least to our eyes as we look at our, our English translations. Um, but the, the word here that we'll see in verse 23, um, embedded there, many believed, the word believed in his name uh, when they saw the signs that he was doing. And then in verse 24, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. The word believed and entrust, I want to point this out because if we don't see this initially, uh, it might cause us to miss the point of this, this text. Many believed in his name and Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Whenever you see the word faith, whenever you see the word believe, whenever you see the word trust in your English New Testament, uh, 
what you need to realize is that these words in the original language all have the same root. They're all derived from the same word in the original language. And so what it would be wrong to say is that any of these words in our English translations could be switched out at any point. Uh, But there is some nuance here that we want to explore out of the gate to better understand what uh, what John is communicating to us about what Jesus did here in verses 23 through 25. While the words faith, belief, trust cannot be interchanged just in our language, we also need to recognize that they are inseparable. These words are inseparable. Let me give you an example. If you go online, say this week you go online and you buy a chair. You buy a chair and uh, UPS delivers the chair to your house. You take the chair out of the packaging. You put the, it's a dining room chair, so you put it at the dining room table. And you slide it under the chair, and then when when dinner time comes, you uh, you sit down in the chair and eat your eat your dinner. Now, think about the chair, and think about the the interaction that we have with the words faith and belief and trust. When you unpackage that chair and you take a look at the chair and observe the qualities of the chair and you observe the chair's chairness, right? The chair has four legs, it has a seat, it has a back, it looks sturdy, it's pretty heavy, appears to be well made. Then you draw the conclusion that you can believe that the chair will hold you. You believe that the chair, when you sit down in it, will hold you. And because you believe that the chair will hold you, you, at dinner time, sit down in the chair. You sit down. And that, that's the act of trust. Trust is the action that you take to sit down in the chair uh, after you have believed uh, that the chair can hold you. If you take these two things, take these two components and add them together, you have our understanding of faith. Faith in, includes the belief that the chair will hold you, and it also, uh, it also incorporates the element of trust that you actually sit down and take the action, take the step to sit. You do not trust the chair until you sit in it. And if you don't sit down in the chair, then you actually don't have faith that it will hold you. Faith without trust is not faith. The Bible says it in the book of James. In the book of James, in chapter 2, verse 14, James says, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now the works here are the understanding of what, what, what is said to us to be true, and then action that lives according to that truth. So, if you claim to believe that the chair will hold you, but if you say, no, 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 I'm not going to sit in the chair, I'm not going to sit down, then your claim, your claim is empty. It's meaningless. And so what I want you to note this morning as we get into this text is that the words faith and trust and belief are different terms and carry different meanings but are inseparable. And I think we need to have these. I want you to file that away in your brain for the, for the rest of our time together because we're going to be challenged I think, in our understanding of faith as we consider these three verses. We're going to be also, though, introduced to the solution uh, to the challenge that comes before us. A challenge of incomplete or what we might call artificial faith. 
So these three verses, when we get to the end of chapter 2, are sort of operating as a summary to what has happened so far in chapter 2. So if we look at the beginning of chapter 2, we see the emphasis here in this chapter is on the signs that Jesus is performing. He's performing a miraculous sign right out of the gate in the wedding at Cana. He turns the water into wine, keeps the party going, declares the messianic age is here, and that he is the one who fulfills, uh, fulfills the, the prophecy. And so he's declaring that uh, by turning water into wine. This is a miraculous sign. And then in verse 13 through 17, he flips some tables over and drives people out of the temple uh, because, of their, because of their business dealings there that are dishonoring uh, his father's house. And then at the end of what we explored last week in verses 18 through 22, we see the Jews asking him for an additional sign. Now, he doesn't give them a sign in the way that they want, but he does point forward to his death, burial, and resurrection, where he's going to deal with the, the sin problem. And the disciples remember this later, and they believed uh, the, uh, in what Jesus had said. And if you look at the end of verse 22, they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So there's a heavy emphasis on signs in chapter 2 and chapter 2 here. But, uh, we, but there, this, these three verses right at the end of chapter 2 stand as a, a slight corrective to, to what we might be inclined to believe about uh, what Jesus is doing and what he came to accomplish. John wants us to understand a couple of things headed into this next section, into chapter 3, which is a very important chapter uh, because we're going to get John 3.16 in a couple of weeks. Um, that's a, a very famous verse. And this famous interaction with the, this Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. I'll reference that in a moment as we consider uh, the, the, the end of chapter 2 and how this kind of flows into chapter 3. But the two things that we want to consider this morning or we're driven to consider by these three verses is, is one, that there is a faith that is not saving faith, and two, that Jesus can distinguish between both real and artificial faith or incomplete faith, we might say. So, first... There is a faith that's not saving faith. We see this here in these verses. Uh, the, the first thing and what gets me about this passage, if you go, go back in your Bible to uh, chapter 1 and look at verse 12 in chapter 1. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now go back to chapter 2 and look at verse 24. Or verse 23, excuse me, into verse 24. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. You see there in, that, in the prologue, in verse 12 of chapter 1, Jesus says that those who believed in his name are given the right to become children of God. But then here we get that same phrase, believed in his name, and then we learn that Jesus did not entrust himself to these ones. So I think we need to draw the conclusion right out of the gate that despite the fact that John uses the same words in both of these instances, he's actually meaning something different. He's actually saying something different. And we're being shown here that there is a faith that can exist or a belief that can exist that does not amount to saving 
faith. So, and we need to ask the question, well, what's, what's the difference? What's the difference between these two things? Look at, look at verse uh, 24 again, or 23, excuse me again. When they, there's a little phrase that's embedded there. When they saw the signs that he was doing. When they saw the signs that he was doing. So I think what it boils down, the difference between 112 and 223 boils down to the fact that of what the, ba- or what the faith is based on. What is faith based on? Is it based on the signs that Jesus performs? That's what is happening in verse 23. Or, what we're going to see as we explore this further, is it based on the words that Jesus says? This is the faith that is uh, described in 112. Those who believe in his name, who are given the right to be called children of God, their faith is based on the words that Jesus says. So, the signs Jesus performs by themselves by themselves are shifting sand for faith. On the other hand, the words that Jesus says is a solid rock for faith. Jesus says it himself in Matthew 7:24, he'll say, "Everyone who hears these words, this is the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them. And again in verses 20, or 18 through 22, Jesus refused to give a sign in the ways that the Jews demanded for a sign. Then in Mark 8, 11 through 13, we're given a similar situation. We're told that the Pharisees came and began to argue with him seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat, and went to the other side. I think to maybe illustrate this point, think about an area in your life where you have authority. Where you've been given authority, maybe it's at work, or or maybe it's uh, as a parent in your home. Uh, consider okay, so consider that you're a manager at work, and there are people under you who work for you. When you show up on Monday morning, and you are a manager, you get your team together. I don't know what your Monday morning looks like, but say this is a hypothetical. So say that you get together and you assign some tasks to to those people who you have authority over. What, what, if, what if one of the people who you are assigning a task to said, I need to see your credentials? You're like, dude, we did this last Monday and the Monday before it and the Monday before it. But, but I need to see your credentials. I need to see like your education and make sure that your resume checks out, that you actually have the authority that is needed to assign this task. I only believe you if you have the author- that you have the authority to say these things to me about the job when you prove to me that you have the authority. So you give them your resume, you give them their credentials, whatever. It's a step, right? You're saying, okay, here you go. Um, this is the, the basis of, of, of my, my authority. But that's just meant to, to, to signal the fact that you do, in fact, have the authority to assign the task. <laughs> 
By performing signs in the the Gospel of John and, and all throughout the New Testament, Jesus is indicating his authority and his credentials in order to assist or to build a foundation for the believing of his message. But while seeing a sign and responding in faith like those who are described here in verse 23 is is good, it is ultimately incomplete. It's not the sum total of of faith. And ultimately, it doesn't uh, amount to, in and of itself, it doesn't amount to saving faith. If faith is only based on the observation of a sign, it is artificial. Faith requires that you believe the truth and then that you act upon the truth. And this is the difference between then verse 12 in chapter 1 and verse 23 in chapter 2. Those who believed in his name and are given the right to become God's children and those who believe in his name to whom Jesus does not entrust himself. This is going to be highlighted in the next section. If you look in just down the page, chapter 3, verse 2. Jesus meets this Pharisee named Nicodemus and he comes to Jesus and he says to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, there, there's some faith required to make this statement, right? But, but do you know who else could make this statement? A Muslim. A, a Muslim could make this statement about Jesus. This falls right in, the, right in the, the, the amount of things that they could say about Jesus. Nicodemus believes that God is with Jesus because Jesus does signs. But okay, okay great. But, th- but that isn't, doesn't amount to saving faith. It's not belief in the name of Jesus that results in being given the right to become God's children. As Christians, we we need to realize, as Christians, we need to realize that faith is not this ethereal concept. It is well-defined in the New Testament. I think sometimes we just kind of flatly throw out faith as this this thing that we, we're not quite sure or don't have quite a grasp on, but these three verses really wants to bear down on our understanding of faith. And I fear that many people who claim to be Christians and claim to have faith, their faith is not based on Jesus' words. It's not based on the words of Jesus that are the bedrock of faith. Many people who say to be, they claim to be Christians have a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately type faith. What have you done for me lately, faith? If your faith is determined by what Jesus does for you, healing your sickness, keeping your bank account at an acceptable level, giving you patience at work, giving you energy to accomplish a task, that's what have you done for me lately, faith, and that's a dangerous spot to be in. This is the kind of faith that these people described in verse 23 have. A faith that led Jesus not to entrust himself to them. It's a faith that, as we walk through John's gospel, we'll see will ultimately fade. It'll fade. And when the rubber hits the road and when the words of Jesus get hard, these people walk away. Read the the book of James. I referenced it earlier, but if you read the book of James, you have to draw the conclusion that demons believe the Bible. Deuteronomy 6 communicates that God is one. 
James chapter 2, verse 19 says, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even demons believe and shudder. The demons believe that truth very deeply, so much that they shudder. I don't know the, I don't know the last time that I shuddered at the oneness of God. I, I should. But the faith or the belief that they have in the oneness of God isn't saving faith. Believing that God is or a particular quality about God is not saving faith. Believing that Jesus is sent from God because of the signs he does is right, but it's incomplete. It's not uncommon to hear someone say, if you're sharing the gospel with a friend or a neighbor, coworker, friend, it's not uncommon to hear them say that they believe, well, I believe that God exists. Well, that's great. That's a step. But all that means is that you're not an atheist. There's a lot of other categories that you can fall into. There's more to saving faith. This is what this text is about. There's more to saving faith than just observing one thing about Jesus and leaving it there. Saving faith is a faith that's based on the words of Jesus and that acts accordingly by trusting Jesus. Which leads us then to our second point, which John unpacks in the second half of verse 24 and into verse 25. John tells us about Jesus' omniscience, which leads us to understand that Jesus can distinguish between both real and artificial faith. And omniscience is the quality of just knowing everything. Jesus knows everything at all times about all people. We're told that Jesus knows everything about everyone. And we're told that three times in rapid succession. Look at the, the second half of verse 24, or just the last few words. He knew all people. That's one. And then two, the beginning of verse 25, he needed no one to bear witness about man. And then three, he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knew that everything that needed to be known. And the many who believed when they saw the signs did so incompletely or did so artificially. And this is why Jesus doesn't entrust himself to them. His response indicates what he believes to be true about their faith. The people saw the signs and they were intended to point them to Jesus, but they stopped short and chased Jesus for his works. when they got a glimpse of Jesus for who he was, they would bail out. And we'll see this when we get to the end of John 6, and we'll we'll unpack that when we get there more. But I want to highlight this because this is where the the rubber hits the road. At the end of John chapter 6, Jesus finishes up with an intense teaching section. You can go back and read that if you want. It's a hard saying. It's hard truth. And we're told that when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? Now, many of his disciples in John 6, that's not referring to the 12. That's just referring to a group of people who was following him. Uh, Probably a lot like the people who are described here in verse 23. The many who believed in his name. Jesus perceives their grumbling when they say, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? 
He perceives this about them and says in response, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And then in verse 66, we get this. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So you're saying that to mean many of the individuals who saw his signs and believed in his name, but their, their faith stopped short. It was incomplete. They just saw the signs and they were like, this is good. I'm chasing Jesus for his works and for his signs. They, they observe, then they hear the hard teachings of Jesus, and then they turn around and they go the other way. But what happens next, again, is very telling. In verse 67 to 69, this is what John writes. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You have the words of eternal life. You have the words of eternal life. This is bedrock. This is bedrock. This is faith that doesn't stop short at the signs and just says, what have you done for me lately? The words of eternal life expose this artificial faith because Jesus has unpacked them throughout chapter 6 and when he comes to the end of it, many turn and go the other way. But the twelve remain. It causes those whose faith is based on signs to turn and no longer walk with Jesus. But to those whose faith is based on the words of Jesus, The response is, Lord, to whom shall we go? In John 2, 23-25, our text this morning, Jesus knew that this type of thing was going on in many people. And Jesus' response to the knowledge of what was in man is to not entrust himself to them. And this is the way that he relates to the sign-seekers with artificial and incomplete faith in these three verses. But for those whose faith is established in the bedrock of his words, Jesus treats them much differently. In fact, he gives them the right to be called children of God. For many people, these three verses might be terrifying, and I think that's probably my initial response as well. What, what if my faith is incomplete? Or what if my faith is just a what have you done for me lately type faith? Then what? What if I'm sign-seeking? I'm so prone to quickly be frustrated with my circumstances, and I pray more than any other prayer, Jesus, iron this out. Iron this out for me. When I read the difficult teaching of Jesus, I oftentimes think to myself, I'm going to kick the can down the road. I'll figure this out later. 
I think if we're honest with ourselves, deep, deep down, each of us in our own power, we have to admit that we can only conjure incomplete and artificial sign-seeking, what-have-you-done-for-me-lately faith. And I want to propose to you that's why this text is an encouragement. That's why this text is an encouragement. And why the omniscience, the fact that Jesus knows everything about all people at all times, why that truth is a soft pillow for us to rest our heads on as Christians. Jesus knows you infinitely better than you know yourself. You should take comfort in that. Jesus knows you infinitely better than you know yourself. We... We dedicate our whole lives to understanding who we are. I just scratch the surface, but I give myself to social sciences or to personality profiles. I'm an introvert or I'm an extrovert. I learn what I'm good at and what I'm not so good at. You learn what your gifts are and you develop skills throughout your life. But Jesus knows it all and he knew it all before you were conceived. He knew it all before the foundations of the earth. He knew every intimate detail about you down to the most granular level for all of eternity. Even if you're 90 years old, you probably have learned a lot about yourself, but Jesus knows more than you could know in the next 90 years, or the next 900 years, or the next 9,000 years. Since Jesus knows everything there is to know about you, friends, he knows what you need. And he knows what you need better than you know what you need. Whatever you think your greatest need is here right now, today, Jesus knows it better. Jesus knows what your need is better than you. In his word, he says that you need a saving faith that is based on his word. And the application of this text is that that only Jesus that can diagnose your greatest need, and he's the only one who can meet it. Jesus is the only one who can diagnose your greatest need and he's the only one who can meet your greatest need. There is nothing in this world, there is no one who can even come close. And here's where this sign-seeking faith is incomplete. Where we just leave it there, it's incomplete. Because it's based on what you think you need, not what you actually need. Friends, your greatest need yesterday, today, and tomorrow is to have your sin dealt with. We will go moment to moment throughout the course of this day and this week, shifting in our mind. Even though intellectually we may be able to say to ourselves, uh, my greatest need is to have my sin dealt with. There will be moments where you feel and where 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 you're tempted to believe that your need is something else. Your greatest need, though, according to Scripture, according to Jesus, is to have your sin dealt with. Friends, you can't do it. You can't do it. But Jesus did it. He died to take care of what is in you. He knew what was in man, and it was sin. And on the cross, he paid for the sin, and he put to death the result of the sin, which is death itself. Artificial, incomplete faith that seeks signs 
We'll focus on tomorrow's problems when you get into the office. We'll focus on the pain you feel in your body right now. We'll focus on the earthly. We'll focus on the material. We'll focus on the temporary. We'll focus on quick fixes. And we'll follow Jesus only when those things are handled. I'm not saying that Jesus doesn't care about those things. Again, here's another instance where Jesus cares more than you could possibly know about your, the minutia and the intimate details of your life. But if that's all you're looking for, if your faith is like the faith of the people in verse 23, and you're just looking for Jesus to handle your problems and not looking to know him, as the God of the universe who created and sustains all things. And the faith described in John 1.12 though, those who find the words of Jesus to be bedrock, those who believe in his name, these ones are given the right to become children of God. And this faith says, despite the circumstances, despite the scenarios, despite the fact that wherever you find yourself today, tomorrow, or the next day, the response is the same. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. It is Jesus and Jesus only that can author in you a faith that will flourish for eternity. It is Jesus and Jesus only that can know our greatest need and meet it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Lord God, I pray this morning that we would believe in our hearts that you are the only one who can meet our greatest need. God, would we not be tempted to be what have you done for me lately people? whose faith is only established and built incompletely on what you've done for us lately. God, but we would, would we rather go to your word this week and learn to love you more deeply. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.